Okay, well, thank you, everyone. I'll start now. So on behalf of NSI, my name is Gabriel Otis, and I want to thank everyone for joining us and viewing, as well as our wonderful panel of experts talking about the vital issue of economic coercion from, from the PRC um, and all the different dimensions that's come along with that. Um, we have a wonderful lineup of experts for you today, and I, I, I'm very privileged to also we have NSI's very own senior fellow, Lester Munson, as our moderator. And so Les is previously staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, former chief of staff to Senator Mark Kirk of Illinois, as well as former deputy assistant administrator at the USAID. And we're very happy that he is now here moderating the conversation. So without further ado, I'll kick it off to, to Les um, to introduce our group of panelists. So thank you for a good conversation in advance. Uh, thanks, Gabriel, and welcome, everyone. We're very excited to have uh, a really rock star panel here to discuss uh, China and economic coercion issues, uh, and and I just want to say at, at the get go before I before I introduce the the folks on the panel, I'm going to do it alphabetically. Um, they have some amazing resumes. I encourage you to to look them up. I'm going to give the short version so we can uh, kind of dive right into the conversation. Matt Goodman is senior vice president for economics and holds the Simon Chair in Political Economy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, an august Washington think tank, to be sure. Uh, before he joined CSIS, uh, Matt served as Director for International Economics at the National Security Council staff, helping the president uh, prepare for global and regional summits, including the G20, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit, and the East Asia Summit. He has also spent time at the State Department, a uh, really terrific uh, background. Nazak Nakaktar uh, is the chair of the National Security Practice at the August Washington law firm of Wiley Rhine. She served in the last administration as the Department of Commerce's Assistant Secretary for Industry and Analysis at the International Trade Administration, or ITA. She also fulfilled the duties of the Undersecretary for Industry and Security at Commerce's Bureau of Industry and Security. And she has a terrific background in trade issues um, and export controls and things like that that we're going to be diving into here. Randy Shriver is chairman of the board at the Project 2049 Institute. In addition, he is also a partner at, Polyf at, excuse me, at Pacific Solutions, LLC. He was the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Indo-Pacific Security Affairs from January 8th, 2018 to the end of 2019. So in the last administration, he also has a long and distinguished career uh, even before that working at DOD. Uh, on the civilian side, he was in uniform uh, as a naval intelligence officer a few decades ago. So really terrific background from Matt on uh, on some security issues. So, uh, folks, I want to I want to throw out a general question. And uh, Nazak, I think we'll we'll give you the honor of responding first since you're wearing red and um, and that certainly catches the eye. Uh, so I, I want to ask about your views of China and economic coercion, very broadly speaking. Where do we stand today? What, it, what is China doing in the world that is working? And what is it doing that is not working from its perspective on this front? Yeah, thanks. Um, very good to be with you, Les, uh, the folks here. Um, and for this, what's going to be a dynamic discussion and great first question. I think China has been very effective. So what China's doing right now is not new. We were on the front lines of the U.S.-China economic war 20 years ago when China entered the WTO, the World Trade Organization. And from then on, China has moved very aggressively in hollowing out our industries. So how, what has China been most 
effective with economic coercion, weakening supply chain. It has been his MO for quite a long time. Start at the commodity sector and then work your way up the value chain. Um, it's also been really effective. We see what's just happened to Micron, um, right? It, it looks, it, uh, it lures investments in, it hollows industries, supply chains abroad. It lures investments into China. So it becomes a center of gravity in supply chains, technological know-how, luring foreign investors in, building up its national champions. And then it will take, take them out individually if they or their governments don't do what's in the CCP's best interest. Um, the other point I want to mention is that, you know, obviously we're, lots of folks are talking about the risks in China being so significant, doing business in China being so significant. But to the extent that folks really want to understand why this is the case, um, look at it in terms of, um, you know, the JVs in China. When you invest in China, you have to do a joint venture. China owns a majority stake. China owns a majority stake. It already controls the company. It's going to nationalize it. It can easily nationalize it. It already controls it right now. And so it's been working to set up these levers for itself to basically take hold of, of the technology foreign companies on the mainland. Um, internal, in terms of uh, externally, what has it been doing badly? I think this whole China calling its loans to a number of countries, Pakistan, Kenya, um, dozens more, I think that's going to backfire. I think that the world is going to see um, doing business with China just because it's cheap doesn't mean that it's in your best interest. And I think the world is going to back away from that. So, um, but right now, let's make no mistake. Um, things are not going in China's favor, but let's focus on things that are really going in China's favor and to our vulnerability is, is the supply chains. It's accumulated critical supply chains, and we need to race to get our supply chains out. Matt Goodman, over to you. Okay, thanks, Les, and uh, great to be with um, with you folks. Um, if I may, I, I just want to start by um, raising a little concern about the sort of framing and the titling of this of this um, session. Um, you know, we have enough problems with with China, and I'm going to talk about a couple of them um, here. That I just think we should try not to use sort of broad emotive terms to discuss uh, our problems. So terms like repression and exploitation, I mean, those are, you know, broadly um, sort of, you know, emotive terms that just, I think, make it harder and maybe even are counterproductive in, in trying to address some of the real challenges. Um, counterproductive because, you know, it hardens Beijing's attitude and and makes them more likely to do the things we don't like them to do. Um, our partners and allies don't like that terminology, even if they share some of the concerns, they they really don't want it framed that way. It puts them in an uncomfortable position um, and we need them to help deal with these issues. And, you know, in the U.S., it just makes it harder to get a real kind of sensible dialogue going about what we should actually do as a practical matter about these problems. And frankly, I think it feeds um, anti-Asian American hate uh, we had a big conference on that yesterday, and and I think these these issues feed into it. So, you know, with that um, opening, I would say there's no question China poses a huge array of challenges for the United States and for our interests. And, uh, you know, just in the economic sphere, um, which is what I focus on, 
you know, you have issues at home where they are, you know, moving sharply away from reform and opening, have moved away uh, from that, are, you know, tightening the, the party's control on the marketplace. Um, they're uh, controlling information, uh, continuing to massively subsidize industry and, and force technology transfer, a lot of problems within China. And then externally, you have an array of issues from uh, problematic belt and road lending uh, to the debt problems that they're causing and not helping solve um, and uh, and then economic coercion. And and so an and array of other things. But those are just a, a, a sort of short list of some of the problems. So we've got real problems um, and we need real solutions. And, and we did a study on economic coercion. I won't do the whole summary here, but if you want me later to, to follow up on some of the detail, we, we spent about 16 months looking at, at eight, eight cases uh, that are prominent cases from the Japan rare earths case uh, in 2010 to Lithuania, still ongoing today. Um, and, you know, we took away some findings from that uh, that uh, that I can go into in more detail. But our bottom line is we we came up with a counter strategy that we think is is the most likely to help deter uh, China from uh, persistently engaging in this kind of behavior against our 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 friends and partners and and desired partners uh, because they've been doing this now for a long time ag- across the world and it's a real problem for the international order and for our interests so we we've got some ideas about how to how to respond to that but I'll I'll stop talking now and happy to come back to some of the detail. Uh, terrific. Thanks, Matt. I think I think we're clearly going to have some issues uh, for a vibrant discussion here. Uh, Randy Shriver. Great. Well, thanks, Lester, and uh, good to be with Matt and Nazak. So you, you might have uh, uh, picked up in the in the introductions. My background is a little more national security defense focus. I'm certainly interested in, in U.S.-China economic relationship and, and some of the vulnerabilities that Nazak mentioned. Uh, but what I look at a, a little more is sort of the the uh, overlap of of China's strategic and security interests and these uh, trade investment practices, uh, as well as some of the direct coercion of of some of our critical allies and partners. And so, you know, I, I think there's a spectrum of activity that that uh, frankly, all of it is concerning, but but some more than others. Um, we do definitely see an overlap between China's ambitions on the military front and security interests and their trade practices and investments. And it ranges from the debt trap diplomacy that re- resulted in China's access to the port of Hambantota in, in Sri Lanka to things that are, I would describe more as sort of incentive based and not an and elite capture, uh, such as what's going on in Cambodia and the development of the port of Riem, which uh, Hun Sen says it can't possibly be a port for the Chinese because that's against our constitution. But to the untrained eye, it's starting to look an awful lot like a Chinese uh, port or at least access to uh, that port for for Chinese vessels. Um, and so we definitely see that. But but we also see the direct coercion. And, and Matt was uh, in his study, looked at several of these cases uh, these are very important uh, relationships in many cases for the United States. But I would say that, that it's a bit of a mixed bag from China's perspective. Um, timing in life is everything. I just happened to be in Lithuania last uh, Thursday and Friday uh, on a trip for the U.S.-China Economic Security Review Commission. And I would say that that it's a story of coercion and, and very dedicated uh, efforts on the part of China to punish Lithuania for particular decisions. 
the, the most proximate uh, decision being the, the decision to open a Taiwan representative office and call it the Taiwan representative office. But it's also really a story of resiliency in, in Lithuania. Um, now, granted, they weren't uh, terribly exposed in the sense of large trade volumes and large exports to begin with. But uh, thanks in large part to their uh, membership in the EU and, and, and uh, trade opportunities within the EU, they were able to, to uh, quickly compensate for the exports that they lost to, to China. For the most part, there were some sectors that were, were hit a little bit harder. And then uh, equally, if not more importantly, the EU hanging with uh, the Lithuanians when it came to the threat of secondary uh, sanctions, which really were concerning. So, you know, the, the, the Lithuanians have showed a lot of resiliency. I would say the same as was true of Australia uh, when it came to certain sanctions on, uh, for example, Australian wine. I would say the same was true of Norway. The same was true of uh, Japan, as, as Matt mentioned, the 2010 case. Uh, probably the same true of South Korea when latte uh, markets were, were boycotted. Um, and so, you know, I'm not sure this is really paying off for China in terms of uh, punishment and cost imposition. And I would argue it's really not paying off when it comes to the geopolitics and the response for most of these countries. I think it's generating a lot of anti-China sentiment and more opportunity, frankly, for us and, and other partners. Um, but it is something that needs to be watched and studied. In the, in the case of, of Lithuania, you know, the Chinese basically took the Lithuanians off the, the, the customs list, pretending that they didn't exist. But the ambassador in Vilnius was was swearing up and down that nothing was going on to the to the Lithuanian officials in, in the first few weeks of this. So we need to understand these tactics. And uh, Matt has done a good study on this. And, and, and I'm sure Nazak has great ideas as well, uh, having spoken with her about this many times. Um, we, we need to understand specifically how they approach these uh, scenarios of coercion and have smart countermeasures. And plus, maybe I, I just want to add one more point. I mean, we cannot talk about China and the Chinese government as like this country that's just doing these one-off things that we have to deter or try to address, right? This is a scheme, a centrally controlled by the state scheme to leverage predatory pricing, IP theft, economic coercion, debt trap, uh, support to resource-rich countries like Russia and Iran, uh, control over critical supply chains, all centrally coordinated to weaken uh, China's adversaries, strengthen its own capabilities to ultimately leverage control over countries and make them its puppets. And um, when you have a country that's doing all of this in an orchestrated simultaneous way, and at the same time threatening the United States and its allies, now we've passed this, you know, we've got to deal with China. This is one-off actions and it's a real problem. And we've got to think about it as a, as a, as a central government leveraging these or deploying these tactics in a really dangerous, economically sort of threatening ways. And we've got to respond for what it is. But this is not just a country that's doing these one-off things. Um, okay. Uh, lots to discuss. Folks uh, in the audience, if you have a question, there's a Q&A uh, mechanism at the bottom of your screen. We've already got uh, one question in the chat. Please feel free to contribute. Um, and and we will we will get to those in short order. Um, Matt, I'm wondering if, if you want to react to um, uh, Nazak's uh, uh, laydown here of, of China's practices, of the CCP's practices, and, and talk about 
if if you want to put it in this context of how U.S. policy has evolved, uh, particularly in the last few years, both this administration and the previous administration taking a much different approach than you know Bush administration, Obama administration. Just I'd, I'd be interested in your thoughts on um, on how that how that large kind of tectonic movement we've seen in U.S. policy kind of applies to the stuff where where maybe you and Nazak may disagree on on how to characterize it. Well, I certainly agree that the, these uh, behaviors are, are persistent and there's a pattern here that is not just a one-off thing. It, it's, it runs across all the cases we studied and, and many others uh, where China typically is feels offended by some relatively specific and, you know, China's centered um, problem like the name, as, as Randy said, of, a, of an office in a remote capital um, or a prize being awarded to a Chinese dissident or, um, 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 you know, a, a, a Buddhist monk visiting uh, your capital. Uh, those are the kinds of things that China persistently seems to, to go after. And the way they go after it is this sort of low level, informal, deniable um, um, type of, as, as Randy said, you know, we're not doing anything. There's nothing to see here. Um, or, you know, um, on Norwegian salmon, suddenly, you know, a week after the, the Nobel prize ceremony in 2010, you know, suddenly Norwegian salmon was found to have, you know, some kind of health uh, issues around it. So this is, this is a, a persistent pattern. And we, um, you know, w- when we looked at this hard though, we, we, we came away saying it really doesn't have huge costs to the targeted countries. It's painful for latte or for the salmon industry. Although even there, the salmon salmon exports to Vietnam in the three years after the coercion went up by 17 fold. And unless you believe the Vietnamese suddenly got a taste for salmon, you got to believe there was some trade diversion there and that that stuff was getting into China anyway. So, you know, the cost is is minimal, uh, usually. And um, and so the response has to be appropriate to that. And and the question is that we found was if you respond proportionately, you know, it's probably not going to change Beijing's calculation. If you escalate and you say we're going to do, you know, a lot more expensive things for us to get you to back down, you you lose credibility because, you know, are we really going to go to uh, go to war um, over Australia and Shiraz? Uh, you know, um, and sacrifice California Sabre, uh, Cabernet for that. So, so there's a credibility problem, which is key to deterrence. Um, and and then you know, we just the, all the countries we talked to said we don't want retaliation from the U.S. because it'll just cause more problems for us. So what, that led us to the other form of deterrence, which is making China feel it's going to fail, and um, uh, not the not the punishment form of deterrence, but the failure uh, side of things and. And the way to do that is to help make our partners more resilient, to make them feel less vulnerable, to give them trading options. So we strongly recommended that the U.S. negotiate free trade agreements with with partners to give them more access to our market, um, um, to do supply chain resilience measures that we can help them with. Um, and we even then suggested a, a, a relief fund. That's the other element if a country is coerced to give them some relief, which could be a statement of support. And as Randy knows, you know, Koreans are still a little sore that we didn't really say very much about the THAAD related coercion in Korea. Um, And if we had just put out a statement saying this is a real problem uh, for us that our allies being uh, coerced, I think that would have gone a long way. 
But in addition to that, you know, we can support them in WTO cases, which came to the play. You can you can save WTO doesn't matter, but Australia offered a re- removal of their two WTO cases on barley and wine as the as the offer that got um, Beijing to back back off on some of their coercion. So it is a, a useful tool, it turns out. And and then we also advocate a, a compensation fund, not a big one because that causes you know potential problems fiscally, but also in terms of moral hazard, but a small fund that we could use to allocate to a Lithuanian um, company that gets um, that gets targeted by coercion. And those combination of things, resilience, relief, we think will help over time make China realize that it's not going to be successful. That said, one final point, China is going to do what China is going to do. Um, and I think they're going to remain a bully. I think it's going to be very hard to change that behavior fundamentally. Um, but uh, I think this is the best way to try. And the final point, we need to have something to offer all of these countries, these partners. We need to offer them market access or infrastructure investment or capacity building or something that is an alternative to what China is offering, because in a lot of cases, countries are are seeing China's coming and building the road or offering the, the you know, Huawei equipment or something. And and we need to have something to say about that that isn't just you shouldn't buy that stuff. We we need to be able to offer something as an alternative. Um, all right. Let's talk about that alternative. Uh, we're, and we are getting some some nice questions in the chat, folks. So I encourage you to uh, keep keep uh, entering things there. But let's talk about what the U.S. does offer as perhaps an alternative or a, or a different path in the Trump administration, there was a program at USAID called Clear Choice, uh, which which some people had some concerns about the title, but definitely tried to use some of the U.S. economic and, and assistance tools in a way with developing countries in particular to kind of bring them towards the, the U.S.-led Western approach. Uh, the, the current administration has, has transmogrified that a little bit, make it a little more Biden-esque, uh, but it's not unlike what the Trump administration was doing. In fact, I, I tend to see a lot of parallels in the in the two approaches. Randy, I want to go to you first. Uh, I know you're, you focus on security issues, but wondering if you're seeing uh, kind of as, as an overlay over the over security concerns, some of these assistance issues, both what China's doing with the Belt and Road Initiative and then the alternatives that are that are being offered by the U.S. government and and other allied governments. Well, I think the point about needing an alternative is exactly right. And I think uh, what we've put forward so far, uh, first of all, it's it's all sort of dwarfed by the fact that the the continuing narrative is we don't have a trade policy for the region. We're unwilling to uh, contemplate either multilateral trade liberalization or even bilateral free trade agreements. So all of this other, uh, all of these other initiatives, well, well-intentioned and, and potentially uh, valuable, it sort of looks like, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're playing small ball and, and missing the big picture. And, you know, I, I think what Matt was talking about earlier is very wise in terms of being able to respond rapidly in the case of direct economic coercion when somebody really gets targeted by the Chinese. But I think what Nazak was saying earlier is is also very important that, that this is not an instance where we need to sort of get back to status quo ante and resume normal trade relations with China if we just take care of a couple of bad actions, bad actors. Um, this is This is part of their strategy to outpace the United States and its competition with us. 
And it's very deliberate in, in certain areas, uh, such as the deindustrialization of the United States. We, we really have to think much bigger than we're, we're thinking so far. And while you know, these programs, I think, are good, they're, they're too small, they're too slow, and they're dwarfed by the, the big missing uh, element of, of a more uh, robust trade policy where we're really addressing the, the needs, for example, market access, as, as Matt said, uh, that our partners are really looking for. So DFC, I think, is another great example. I mean, what a terrific initiative uh, on the part of the Congress and the last administration. DFC still seems to be, um, I, I don't want to be too <laughs> pejorative, but, you know, sort of the green eyeshade, uh, old OPIC approach and and not very strategic and not very fast and not really uh, meeting the challenge. I mean, we really need somebody to be able to say, all these programs have to be directed towards something, and the, the something should be our strategic posture in the Indo-Pacific region, rather than just, you know, uh, having, you know, the, sort of the green eyeshade look at what's the right deal and, and what's the, you know, correct uh, pathway to an agreement for local partners and U.S. I mean, this is all sort of, it, it's, it's causing us to, to really not be on a competitive footing with China. We need to to break out of that with more uh, imaginative thinking and more aggressive thinking, quite frankly. Nazak. Yeah, this is a good conversation. So I, I'll start with saying that, you know, when we look at free trade agreements, um, let's let's think about it in a new innovative way. The United States, we have, you know, some of the lowest bound applied tariff rates in the world, bound 3.4 about average, applied 1.6 our borders are pretty open for trade. And so there's a lot to, there's no much, not much more we can give up, right? And so it's, that's why it's been a little bit challenging because the other countries have sort of more to lose in the United States. But what if we looked at free trade agreements in sort of new imaginative ways? Something we did in the Trump administration that sadly didn't get enough attention and isn't really being championed or replicated right now was this America Crusade initiative, where we looked at Latin American Caribbean countries and we said, let's get to, into MOUs with these countries. And we successfully concluded these MOUs. Let's give them the regulatory ability to um, the, the, the ability to reform the regulations to make it more inviting, transparent for American companies to invest. Make no mistakes, the Chinese are in South America, Latin America. They're investing heavily. They're bringing jobs. They're, they're, they're becoming favorites because of what they bring to these communities. And with the land, they get the air rights. They bribe customs officials. They bring all sorts of you know, drugs and military weapons, really, and I'm not exaggerating through those borders. This is really dangerous when you think about it in terms of encircling the United States. But again, it's a really important question. What if we counter? What if we do more of these America Crusade initiatives, but really see it through? Help these countries reform, help lure more American investments, because at some point, taxpayer dollars are going to run out. We're going to want businesses to be incentivized for investing uh, into these other, into these allied partner countries. Why don't we take our used phones, right? This is what China is. It takes its used phones, used uh, telecom infrastructure, and it gives it to the African countries, right? And then it says, we'll build the towers, we'll build all this stuff. You know, what do we use, what we do with our used phones? We probably throw them in the landfills, right? What if we did initiatives like that, where we took functional used equipment and help our allies, partners build out their capabilities? And another thing we're not doing in terms of as we're building up critical mineral capacity in the United States, um, we've got to enter into partnerships with these Southern American countries where that are mineral rich 
to benefit so they can sustain their economies rather than China coming in, raping and pillaging, taking the minerals out, taking it to China processing, give them the ability to grow economically by bringing technologies to them so that they can mine, they can develop, et cetera. And same as semiconductors, right? Um, why are we built, um, selling semiconductor manufacturing equipment, all of that to China when we need to be building the supply chains redundancies with our allies? So much more we could do, but we should really, going back to the main point, reimagine free trade agreements as these new ways to help build our allies' capabilities rather than us trying to give something else up. Matt, interested in your thoughts on on what the U.S. can and should be doing in response. Well, I certainly endorse uh, or say again uh, the point about trade. I do think we need to be doing uh, more on the uh, the trade fo- policy front because that does have these broad benefits that really a lot of our partners want. And and while Nazak's right that our average tariff rate is 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 not high, there are spikes, and certainly Vietnam in TPP. The deal for them was to get more access for their their textiles and, and footwear and fish um, in our market, which do have barriers um, in exchange for adopting our higher standards, which are the kinds of things Nazak's talking about that would help uh, improve uh, conditions in Vietnam, but also um, would help draw investment um, into Vietnam, which is probably the long term play. Um, so I think the trade agreements are really are really important, and there's a lot that we we have to offer um, there. I do think some of these initiatives are are still useful. I mean, I take Randy's point that that one deal here and there is not going to make a difference. It's more the approach to uh, to incentivizing those deals. If we can if we can help provide a little bit of American capital, as I agree about DFC, it hasn't yet found its feet or, you know, and it's been a while now, they, they, it's five years, I guess, since the Build Act was passed, you know, it's time for them to start getting a little more robust, a little uh, more strategic in their approach. They're still going through some culture shock, I think, of their new mission and everything. Um, but if you could get them deployed, um, other uh, U.S. government instruments that would help provide a little skin in the game, a little bit of um, risk mitigation from government, a little bit of project preparation that helps then the private sector to look at that calculation of risk and reward and say, okay, there's a there's enough potential reward here that we're going to go in, and and then we we win we we have a huge offering. I mean, Belt and Road may be a trillion dollars, though I'm pretty skeptical about even that number. But we have a hundred trillion dollars in in pension insurance, um, you know, private equity funds in the United States, maybe hundreds of trillions. That if we could get that mobilized, it would actually make a big difference. But that's hard, and it's it's not going to be just one thing that's going to do it, and it's not going to be one deal. But but I think that's what we we should be we should be working on creatively. I, just one final, I, I do when I was just in Korea, or I was in Singapore before that, and and you know through those countries, talking with other other countries in the region um, about what they they expect from the U.S. It's not that much. It's not that hard. I mean, a little bit more market access, a little bit more um, investment, a little bit um, um, better offerings on on you know digital related things and so forth i think people want they know that what the us offers is going to be better quality it's going to come with you know the rule of law with after service with capacity with all the good things we our companies bring um and and you know they just need a little bit more of 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 an incentive to go with us rather than the chinese so i don't think it's that hard or that expensive actually 
Um, terrific. All right, I'm going to start going to these questions uh, that the the audience has uh, uh, very generously provided, and I, and I'll do these in a directed way. So, Nazak, I'm going to ask you the first question, and then other panels, if you want to respond, just like kind of say something, and we'll go to you also. But I, maybe we'll just have one one or one and a half answers to each of these. And so, Nazak, the first question is about. Um, uh, from an anonymous person, when trying to decouple from China on strategic ind industries and trade, which areas will be most difficult to, to decrease reliance on? For example, rare earth metals. I, I know you've done a, a lot of thinking in, on this and a lot of work on it. Interested in in your your answer there? Okay, so I, I was hoping I would get this question. So thank you. Um, I really want to answer. So if you if we all think about twenty years ago when we weren't, our economies weren't as intertwined with China, we were resilient, we had good, healthy relationship with trading partners. And actually, America was stronger on the international stage, both economically and militarily. Um, so think about it, 20 years ago, isn't that long ago, so we can un untangle our supply chains from China. Now, to the question of which one is going to be most difficult, um, I don't Frankly, I don't think that there's going to be anyone that's too difficult. The problem is the sheer volume. We have so many supply chain dependencies on China right now. Which ones do we try to sort of reshore first? Um, I'll give you all an example. I mean, most people here, I think, in the audience have never heard of super abrasives. So I talk about it a lot because nobody's really ever heard of it. It's these diamond powders that you need to make 40% of semiconductor wafer fab fabrication steps use super braces um, in terms of cutting uh, all defense equipment, um, every high-tech product globally, you need super abrasives. China controls the global supply chain. So when you start thinking about all the different things that we need to sh uh, reshore, it's volume, not capability. And there's a, there's a strategy in terms of how you sort of prioritize what, what you need to reshore. But in terms of critical minerals, what the, the really neat thing about critical minerals is you, you think about it in three segments, mining and extraction, and that's global, right? You've got the 50 critical minerals, including the rare earths, they're scattered globally. So there's resources globally. How do we ensure that we have access to the global supply? And then when you think about two, um, the two other steps, it's separation and post-separation. Post-separation means taking the oxalates and then making pure, um, pure metal out of it. Um, the Department of Defense has been so heavily funding separation technologies. I think we're about a year or two out from that. And then when you think of post-separation activities, the U.S. prototype, we've, break, we've broken our supply chain dependence on China. We've kind of cracked the code on technology. So even rare earths, what seemed five, six years ago is this impossible thing to solve. We're pretty much a year or two out from solving it. I wanted to, again, say that to underscore that the... the um, issue of these are not difficult problems to solve. We have the IP, we can do it. But the issue is the volume and also lead time. China knows what our supply chain vulnerabilities are, and it knows if it wants to act, it's going to act when the United States is weakest. And we're not going to be able to reshore all of these overnight. And sure, there's capital involved too. So how do we try to um, deter China from doing anything problematic while we take the seven, 10 plus years we need to build out our supply chain capability, whether it's reshore, nearshore, ally shore, however we want to do it, we need to get them out of China. All right, Randy, um, I'm going to go to you with the next question, which is uh, which is about 
Uh, how, what's the reaction in other countries when Chinese extraterrestrial law enforcement personnel are kind of acting on behalf of Chinese government interests? I'm thinking of, you know, that even happened here, right, with the closure of this, uh, this police station in New York. Wondering if you're tracking that issue, what are, what are your thoughts there? Uh, tracking it very much. And it doesn't tend to go over well. Uh, again, just having been in Lithuania, people are talking talk mostly about the opening of a Taiwan office as being the, the proximate cause for the coercion and the break of U.S., uh, pardon me, Lithuanian-China relations. But there was actually a, a pretty high profile incident not long before that where some protesters turned out in Vilnius uh, uh, related to the situation in Hong Kong. And uh, the Chinese embassy or people contracted by the embassy or people sympathetic to the embassy went out and beat them. Um, it does not go over well. And um, it's a it's a global problem. We held a hearing at the U.S.-China Security and Economic Review Commission on, on lawfare. And, and this was certainly one of the issues we looked at. Um, and it is uh, it's. It's um, something that, that we're not immune to ourselves, as you mentioned, uh, uh, Chinese police uh, activity uh, of some kind in, in uh, New York State uh, most recently. So it's, it's a concern, and um, I think it's, it's probably of a larger magnitude than we've even reported on yet, because I think there are undiscovered cells, if you will, in, in uh, many countries. And it's something that can be activated on very short notice, but it doesn't tend to play well. And and what it tends to do, uh, particularly in smaller countries, is uh, turn the uh, uh, population against the elites in their own country, because China is able to conduct some of this activity based on tacit agreement of of the governing authorities and the elites in some of these countries. And so, you know, when when it's seen in that light, it, it doesn't do any favors to the host government when when China's allowed to do these sort of uh, extraordinary uh, extra sovereignty uh, type measures. Can I also add, I, I want to add a, a, the trade, Randy, spot on, um, but I wanted to also talk about the importance of like China's foreign sanctions law on the trade dynamic. I mean, it is so foolish. So the, the anti-foreign sanction law basically prohibits its extraterritorial application, pretty much prohibits entities from complying with anything that laws, foreign laws that sanction China impede China's growth, right? Um, China's interests. So when we have these export control laws that say we're going to export a widget to company X in China, but you better not send it to the other X company Y in China, um, or when we have these CFIUS mitigation agreements with Chinese companies, well, we'll let you invest in this critical technology capability in the United States, but you got to sign this letter that promises that you're not going to transfer chi- technology to China. China has these anti-foreign sanctions law that's legally required. It's, it legally requires them to violate our laws, violate our export control laws, violate our sanctions law. Nobody else is talking about it. You we're talking about it for the first time here because it's so important and it's teed off by that question. Um, we also need to recognize that China actually has laws that direct them to not adhere to U.S. national security laws. And because that's a fact, we don't in the United States have a solution of what we're going to do about this. And the problem is grave because our national security is being compromised every minute of every day because they're being the Chinese are being mandated to violate. Um. Terrific. Matt, I want to kind of combine a couple of questions here, uh, both from Kelly Buckley uh, that are in the chat. Uh, Kelly asks about 
whether we're watching any particular China investments, transactions, or joint ventures, um, or presumably of some sort of strategic significance. And then another, another question from Kelly, what do we think of the rumored executive order that will establish an outbound investment screening mechanism here in the U.S., so-called outbound CFIUS or something like that? Matt, I'd very interested sure. in your reaction to those questions. Sure. Actually, let me start with the latter one. So I think I'm now in month nine or 10, and I'm guessing that uh, Nazak has probably had these questions as well as when is this executive order coming out? And we all say soon. Um, and I'll still say it's coming out soon. Um, that's what I understand. But it hasn't come out yet. And that, to me, is an is an indication there's still some pretty robust debate going on within the administration about exactly how to do this. I mean, the idea that was originally um, actually it was in the FIRMA uh, law, uh, the bill that, that ultimately became the FIRMA law to amend the CFIUS um, investment screening um, uh, system. It got stripped out and there were a couple of other legislative efforts to get it through. It's now um, in the. Um, in the sort of executive order domain. But the idea initially was to have a kind of reverse CFIUS where, um, you know, a wide range of transactions into a wide range of potential troubling countries, not just China, um, could be subject to a sort of a possibly even a case-by-case review process. Um, That all seems to have been, from what you hear, because I haven't seen anything yet, but um, to have been narrowed now to not have that sort of um, sort of significant process in the middle of this uh, and to be more focused on China and to be focused on some strategic technology areas, uh, but to involve some kind of um, uh, information or reporting requirements on the one hand um, and then blocking certain types of transactions already if you receive chips. Act subsidies, you you can't invest in in uh, the China chips um, world, which seems totally reasonable. Uh, there may be some other things blocked. That's what it feels like. This is going to come out um, at something like that. If anybody knows otherwise, I'd be interested to hear because there's a lot of anticipation of this. Um, it's um, it it is probably coming, and it's just a question of getting it um, refined into something that people feel um, you know is implementable. Um, and so so uh, stay tuned for that. Interestingly, other countries like Japan, Europe have have actually the possibility of outbound investment, though they don't typically um, execute or implement it, but they have it in their laws. Um, and then on the first one, I mean, boy, uh, it's hard to say uh, particular trends. I mean, obviously, there are things that have been in the news like TikTok, if you count that as, as what you're talking about is, you know, where there's a Chinese owner ultimately of of this um this uh, service um, in in the United States. And uh, so there are specific things like that, that that people are very intently looking at. Um, You know, there are these these um, infrastructure projects around the world that have drawn a lot of attention, particularly uh, deep water ports. And and Randy's the guy to talk more about that, um, but uh, that are being looked at. I'm sort of my only thing about that is I'm I'm a little skeptical on based on what I see that some of those things are actually going to be um, pulled off into operational um, facilities that certainly Hambantota is not um, what it was cut out to be, um, for one thing, because there's another big port in Colombo that seems to get most of the business. Um, but uh, in Gwadar in Pakistan doesn't seem to be operational anytime soon. But so there are those things that are are causing some 
some concerns. Um, but the the problems about Chinese investments are more not as much about those specific things, but sort of the way they do this with contracts that are not transparent, with collateral requirements that give Chinese lenders favored um, status, um, and you know that 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 create these debt problems and so forth. That's really the or or other problems, corruption and you know environmental damage and all the rest of it. It's more that sort of systematic problem. Um, that that's really, I think, what most people are are worried about. All right, I think we'll ask this question for for all three panelists, which is uh, a reference to the to the BRICS coalition, um, which of course is Brazil, Russia, India, China, uh, and and the idea that there could be an alternative to the U.S. dollar as kind of the uh, the currency of choice uh, for for international economic arrangements. Wondering if, and and I think the question is going at. Uh, how can we resist some of some of these efforts? Another question, uh, another version of that question might be: What can we do to undermine those efforts, and should we be undermining them by by trying to break up that coalition? Uh, folks, be interested in your thoughts broadly and all of that. Randy, let's start with you. Well, I I think the the Russians and the Chinese are doing uh, plenty to, to disrupt that, uh, particularly the Russians right now. Um, you know, I I, I think. Uh, this is one of those where you shouldn't ask a national security expert. You should ask somebody who knows anything about the discussions going on with the debt ceiling. You know, there are a lot of things we need to do just to maintain uh, trust and confidence in the U.S. The U.S. economy, uh, you know, the, the, the value of our word, our, our currency being part of that. Um, there's a lot we can do that doesn't involve any confrontational moves at all. Uh, you know, I think beyond that, I think a, there's been a lot of attention to the possibility of China supplanting us and the renminbi supplanting the U.S. Uh, dollar as the as the world reserve currency, without a lot of thought about you know what the Chinese ambitions are here. And I think, you know, the Chinese to some extent are thinking about uh, strategically and what uh, kinds of deals will make sense to do and. RMB, but when it comes to really supplanting the U.S., there's a lot of downside for the Chinese to, you know, reach that level of of transparency and convertibility and and loss of control that that might entail. That, you know, I sort of have always had the impression they kind of want to hover right under that uh, threshold, and 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 enjoy the flexibility that that might bring them without the burden of of actual, uh, you know, being the the, the the world reserve currency. But that's from a defense guy. I, I was hoping you wouldn't go to me first, so I look forward to hearing from the real. Actually, experts. I think you did a great job there, Randy. I would have said something very similar. I mean, I think the problem for, I mean, yes, I think there is these there are these efforts to sort of skirt the dollar and the incentives because of the sanctions regime are there. Um, and, and there are certain anecdotal reports of different types of arrangements being set up. But the fundamental problem is until China is really ready to open its capital market, um, you know, to have uh, deep, liquid and safe places for you to put your money. If I gave you a million RMB today, where would you put it and feel like you could leave it there and feel comfortable you're going to get it back? Right. Whereas I give you a million dollars, you'd be very happy to um, maybe. June 1, you might not be so happy if you put it in the stock market, which gets to Randy's point. I think the biggest risk in that area and currency area is um, is the U.S. not sustaining our position as a trusted, safe, um, reliable place that honors uh, the full faith and credit of its currency. That's the bigger risk to us, not not what China or others may want to do um, or are doing. 
I'll weigh in. Yeah, um, I, I see it slightly differently. Well, I agree with all the comments. Um, so first and foremost, my issue is India being part of BRICS. Um, if India is looking to us to to to, to rely on it is a China manufacturing alternative to China and it's closing up with China is, makes me uncomfortable. I um, just want to throw it out there. But look, let's make no mistake. China is going to you know, have its currency be the alternative to the U.S. dollar. It is an economic powerhouse. It is, it is by many, 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 many measures, a technological powerhouse. It's going to be the natural. And because of it's the manufacturer of the world, it's going to be probably the alternative. It's, it's making a push there. Countries are responding well. Um, so the, we're going to be in this ecosystem. Now, what's our response need to be? Well, we need to make a bigger push to get our allies on board with the United States um, to, to stay on the U.S. dollars or resist the temptation of going to the RMB. We're not doing much of that yet. We also need to really invest in innovation, digital currency. The more China is able to broaden its reach globally through different types of innovative technological means, um, the U.S. falls further and further behind. So we really need to make up for lost time there. And final point I want to make is what if what's the what's the downside if we don't move? Well, not only does China capture many other countries, but it will use its currency, whether it's hard currency, digital currency, to, to compel those countries to not trade with us. And because of what we were talking about, friend shoring, ally shoring, and the critical resources that exist in those other countries, we cannot afford to do that. We need to step up our game and really do sort of a counter diplomatic measure. And I don't see that being done yet. And we need to make up for lost time. Uh, Randy, let me ask you a question that that maybe a little, you're from the chat that maybe you're a little more comfortable with on the cybersecurity front. Uh, China, of course, pretty tightly controls its own internet, and it's and it's also exporting uh, at least parts of that system to to other countries. What how should how should we be handling that as the U.S. government and and uh, other other allied governments? Well, I, you know, I think this is one of those areas that really calls for an all all of the above approach. I mean, we need to we need to think about reciprocity. All our social media companies are not allowed to operate in China, and yet we're endlessly debating TikTok. I mean, it shouldn't be much of a debate in my in my view. Um, there should be, you know, not even on the merits of are they eating our lunch because uh, all our kids are on this platform, but just on the basis of reciprocity alone, uh, we should be. Uh, taking countermeasures there. But we also need to think about um, uh, our own uh, cyber defenses and how the, the, the uh, public-private partnerships can be enhanced so that there's greater resiliency, critical infrastructure resiliency, but also deterrence. You know, we, you know, the Chinese are, the amount of resources they pour into cyber activity of various kinds for intelligence purposes, uh, for uh, you know, commercial theft, IP theft, uh, potentially for military uh, applications. It's extraordinary. And we're not going to have any chance of stopping this uh, activity uh, unless they unless we start to hold at risk what they what they really value. And to do that, I mean, we have to really ramp up on, I, I would say, on the offensive side. We have tremendous capabilities. Uh, but we need to be in the practice of demonstrating that from time to time uh, so that the Chinese understand there would be real cost uh, if if uh, the status quo persists. This is not a, a an optimal state, uh, nowhere near it. 
And so I think we need to, to, to be in the business of, of trying to alter this behavior. And, and I, I see that there's a deterrence piece that's missing. Can we also talk about the, uh, the defensive and, and everything Randy said spot on, but we have the, um, the Congress is thinking about the Restrict Act. We have the Information Communication Technology and Services Executive Order. Um, let's lay out the, the, the threats that we really also need to worry about. Um, EV charging stations connect to the grid. The software can be injected into the grid, right? And create major, major vulnerabilities. Smart homes connect to the telecom infrastructure and the energy grid. Those malicious codes can be transferred to the telecom infrastructure, to the energy grid. Our vulnerabilities are huge and vast, and we're not doing enough to, to on the defensive side to shore up our vulnerabilities, right? And so we absolutely need to do that because what I worry about, again, if you're China or you're a bad actor and you want to wage war against the United States, you take down the grid, you take down the telecom infrastructure, the chips in your cars, um, they, if, if China has built them this way and they have the technology to do it, they can actually disable your chips so you cannot get in your car and drive away. Right. These are also the things that we need to be talking about. So as we're doing all of the great offensive things that that Randy said we should 100 percent do, we really need to be thinking more on the defensive side, much more so than we're doing right now. Terrific. Okay, we've we've got a few minutes left here, a very few minutes left. I want to ask one more question, then we'll do final remarks. Matt, I, I want to go to you with this. The there was this very interesting comment uh, President Biden made at the G7, where he said he's not he's not necessarily interested in decoupling from China. He's interested in de-risking, and I'm wondering if if you want to. Uh, kind of riff a little bit on on the delta between de-risking and decoupling. Is this significant? Is it not? Is this a more sophisticated approach? What are, what are your thoughts? Well, um, President Biden um, took that from his national security advisor who, who talked about that uh, move from decoupling to de- de-risking. Uh, in his speech in late April at Brookings, and and Jake in turn took it from from uh, Ursula van der Leyen, the uh, president of the European Commission, who had used this this concept in a speech a few weeks before that. And I think that is the new buzz phrase, uh, de-risking. I, I think it's an appropriate shift. I mean, we can't recouple, decouple. I mean, you you may wish that, but look around. Everything you're looking at has a China nexus. So if you want us to sit here naked without any technology, without anything else, that's what the implications of full decoupling with China would mean. Um, and on the other hand, this is a huge market that, you know, that we we need to realistically have access to and be able to, you know, to profit from, frankly. So I think it's not realistic to decouple in a, as a general matter, but there are targeted decoupling we can do. And we did a report a couple of years ago on sort of a, a system for trying to ascertain, you know, where we should identify real risks and and try to decouple. And we're doing that in some areas, the U.S., um, in, uh, you know, the October 7th, 2022 measures on high-end semiconductors and equipment um, is an example of where we are really decoupling in that area, and that's appropriate. And secondly, um, de-risking more broadly, that's what all the supply chain resilience stuff is about. That's what um, attempts to try to, uh, you know, reduce our vulnerabilities for, you know, as was discussed before on critical minerals or rare earths and so forth. So so I think that is an appropriate uh, approach. But let me just say one more thing, which is that 
I do think when I read the G7 communique, I mean, a couple of things significant. There was a whole section on China, which is uh, the first time I recall the G7 having so explicitly had paragraph 51 of the long communique is about China with nine bulleted points. Um, and, and when you read through that, it, it strikes me that there was a sort of a coming together of the U.S. and Europe where Europe was kind of coming along to some of our sharper actual policies because they're the scales are falling from European eyes. They're not there yet, but they're realizing they've got more risk uh, in their relationship with China. And we were coming towards them in sort of tone and and uh, vocabulary. Um, and, and that's what I think explains the decoupling to de-risking on on a sort of superficial level as well. So so that's I think that's significant because we do need to align with Europe um, to get this, uh, these issues soft. Uh, Zaka, Randy, you got, you have a quick reaction to that. I, I would, I, you know, I, I would, take yeah, I, I would say, go ahead, Nazaka. Oh, I, I was just going to quickly say thanks, Randy. Um, I was quickly, I, I would take it a step further. I go back to 20 years ago. We weren't that connected with China. We were stronger. We can get to that situation again. Also every dollar, that we trade with China. If I buy Tupperware from China, I give them a dollar. That dollar doesn't go to the workers. It doesn't go to the companies. It goes to the central government. The more they become the manufacturer of the world, the more capital they control. And that the dollars go to funding genocide or building out the PLA. And I, as an American, for every American value that stands it, I don't want to trade with a regime like that. And so that's where I stand on the decoupling issue. And 20 years isn't so far, so long ago. We can get to that, that kind of situation again. Yeah, I was just going to say decouple, de-risk, whatever the term of art is, uh, we need less talk and more action. I mean, we've been discussing these things for a long time. And uh, it's really, you know, we we can't be sort of overwhelmed by the magnitude of the problem and and say, well, there's nothing we can do. We need to really start to uh, put things into into action with respect to either de-risking or decoupling, because it's, again, the the status quo ante is, is not favorable to us when it comes to this uh, trade and economic relationship with China. There's a there's a story that may be apocryphal, but uh, uh, Roosevelt on the eve of World War II apparently said, if we can just keep the State Department neutral during this conflict, we'll, we'll be in good shape. You know, I'd like to say that it's, it's past time for Commerce, Treasury, and uh, USTR to be neutral. We need them on our side. And uh, people like Nazak, we need her back at places like Commerce to really uh, marshal these great agencies and, and the private sector into a much more optimal competitive posture vis-a-vis China. Uh, folks, I want to say thank you to our panelists, uh, Matt, Nazak, Randy, really a terrific job. And I just want to say what a wonderful example of American pluralism that we have here on this panel where we can all kind of agree in a general direction, but have differentiation among uh, on solutions and policy initiatives and how to talk about it and things like that. I think it's a very American panel that we just had here now. Uh, so uh, kudos to all three of you for doing us. We really appreciate it. Uh, and I want to welcome back Gabriel Otis uh, from the National Security Institute, who is going to uh, end his terrific haircut. Uh, and he is going to give us uh, news on two more upcoming events from NSI. Thank you so much, Les, and thank you to our panelists, and 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 most importantly, thank you to our viewers for for sticking through this very lively but also very productive, I think, conversation on on China's economic coercion. Um, so, if you like this event, um, you know NSI has got you covered for the rest of May. Luckily, we have two fantastic events: one happening on Thursday about the U.S. 
EU tech partnership, focusing on promoting the values abroad and, and enhancing trade, security, and economic prosperity between our two regions. Um, and that will be Thursday, May 25th. Um, from 3 p.m. to 4 p.m., and that is virtual. Second, if you want an in-person event, this, this name is very, I think, okay, so it's called the New Axis of Evil, um, and that's the Alignment of Global Repressors, and that will be an in-person event on Capitol Hill. Um, more information can be found on our website. That will be a breakfast event at 8.30 a.m. starting and going till about 10 a.m. with a panel discussion um, with some three tr terrific, terrific speakers, including Dr. Christopher Ford, um, Ambassador Paula Debriansky, and, and um, um, Deputy former Deputy Administrator for USAID, Bonnie Glick. So we're very excited for, for that discussion. Um, if you want information about NSI generally, um, please go to our website, which is nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. So thank you again. Thank you so much, Les. Thank you to our panelists for, for this wonderful conversation. Okay. Thanks, everyone.